Welcome to the Complexity Premier Podcast. I'm your co-host, Singye Yan Cheng, Portfolio Management Director at Coolabar Capital. And you also have with you tonight, Christopher Joy, another Portfolio Manager at Coolabar Capital Investments. Thanks, Chris. So today we'll cover an update on the financial markets. We'll talk about the eruption of the US-China trade war, some of the secrets hidden in hedging costs and duration for bond investors, the first major bank tier two bond issue since July 2018, the coming of Aussie quantitative easing, what this means for Aussie housing and why we might get positive on RMBS at Coolabar Capital. Chris, it's been an interesting time in financial markets. Can you give us an update on what's been happening recently in credit and bond markets? Yeah, Yingyi, we've seen um, obviously a very strong rally, continued rally in credit in April. Um, There has been an increase in volatility in May, but just covering off April, firstly, the fixed rate Aussie bond index was up 0.28% in the month or 28 basis points. So that's the composite bond index. The floating rate note market performed uh, very strongly. It was up 35 basis points in April. The ASX Bank hybrid market continued to perform. Uh, it was up 61 basis points in April. <clears throat> Over the last year, we've seen the floating rate note index return uh, to the end of April 3.1%. Uh, ASX Bank hybrids have uh, again done very well, returning 6.8%. Uh, fixed rate bonds, because of the big reduction in long term interest rates, and obviously, fixed rate bonds benefit from that so-called duration, uh, whereby the assets have fixed rates of interest. That has returned uh, 7.9%, so that's the composite bond index. We run a active composite bond strategy for a super fund and various other parties, and that returned 10.4% pre-fees over the year to April. We also run uh, a zero interest rate durational floating rate strategy, um, and that carries leverage as well. And that's done about 9% without the benefit of that duration rally pre-fee. So um, all around pretty impressive returns. The month of May, however, uh, they often say sell in May, stay away. Uh, and that's proven to be somewhat germane given the price action we've been observing thus far. I mean, the first week of the month was very strong. And we'll talk about this uh, very shortly, but we've clearly seen some whippy price action uh, in the last few sessions, uh, particularly US equities falling almost 3% on Monday as a result of the Trump uh, tweet tsunami. And we have seen credit spreads move modestly wider in the last uh, couple of sessions. We see this as a bit of a buying opportunity, particularly if uh, credit spreads continue to expand uh, and the soggy market conditions persist. And we broadly prepared for this. Uh, We've sold about $1.6 billion of bonds gross since the start of the year. And we had lifted our cash weights in our strategies to the highest levels in two years at the end of April. So, you know, for example, in our longest running strategy, we had the portfolio weight to cash up to over 33% in that portfolio at the end of April. And in any strategies uh, where we run leverage, uh, we had delevered very aggressively uh, in our Longshore Credit Fund. We actually were holding the lowest levels of leverage at the end of April uh, that we'd ever had since inception. Um, So I'm actually looking for volatility, looking for more dispersion, looking for dislocations that we can exploit should they materialize. Chris, so front and center are the US-China trade wars, and we've seen the US slap China with 25% tariffs on $200 billion worth of goods. 
And then China respond by lifting its existing tariffs to 20 to 25 percent. So after initially rallying last Friday, we've seen markets capitulate on Monday with risk being aggressively sold. How are you thinking through the sudden increase in trade war risk? Yes, Ying Yi, this is a really interesting one for markets and investors like ourselves. Um, just backtracking a little bit. We saw on the weekend that um, the Chinese decided to test uh, President Trump's metal. They basically retraded or reneged on a commitment to list out all the laws that they would amend to adhere to the uh, new regime that they're agreeing to with the US. And um, Trump didn't blink. He immediately reacted by lifting current tariffs to 25% from 10% and then further threatening to apply 25% tariffs to all Chinese exports um, in mid-July. The official timetable, I think, is that there will be a public hearing in June and a request for comment in June. So the likelihood is that if, for whatever reason, China and the US can't resolve this impasse, we're going to see all Chinese exports to the US subject to 25% tariffs by mid-July. Now, importantly, Presidents uh, Trump and Xi meet at the G20 summit at the end of June. So this timetable very much accords with the idea of them resolving their differences at the latest by that meeting. We also know that the Chinese have, after a couple of days, responded with their own, I think, fairly reasonable countermeasures, quote-unquote. So they're increasing the tariffs on all existing US exports um, that they're currently targeting by, as you mentioned, 20 to 25%. But I don't think we've seen a hysterical escalation in rhetoric uh, from the Chinese. I think that given the uh, tsunami of Trump tweets coming into Monday, and I think that Trump overreacted to the very surprising rally we saw in US equities on Friday following his announcements. And I guess he thought that with the incredibly strong US economic data, the jobless rate being at 3.6%, um, the 3.2% GDP growth in Q1 annualized, which had been absolutely consistent with our central case. But I think that Trump felt he was in the box seat. And so he bashed China mercilessly on Twitter over the weekend and markets have not reacted at all favorably with US equity slumping almost 3% on Monday. The Chinese have since signaled, so during Tuesday's session, that they believe they will reach an accord. Obviously, they must have been very, very close to one because I understand that they were preparing for signing ceremonies last week. So we have um, the guts of a deal that's ready to be executed. Clearly, there are a few missing links, but I think the most important thing is to go back to first principles and ask yourselves, what does each party really want here? The US wants completely free trade and no tariffs. And you know, clearly China does not want a situation where all their exports are subject to 25% tariffs. China is actually much more leveraged to global trade than the US. So all things being equal, the Chinese should want uh, you know, high levels of free trade and trade that doesn't come encumbered with any tariffs. And I think Chinese modernization and development has occurred at such a rapid rate over the last particularly 20 to 30 years that they should be comfortable uh, with their competitive advantages and technology capabilities vis-a-vis other countries um, and particularly uh, you know the western five eyes countries 
So you would hope that um, rationality would prevail, and that's absolutely my central case. Um, you know, I think the Chinese have every interest in negotiating an outcome that facilitates much higher levels of trade uh, with all counterparties globally, and the US wants uh, a solution that doesn't involve any frictions or rigidities that reduce trade. Now, clearly, Trump has a 2020 election looming. He wants to seal a deal. You know, one of his uh, few deals he's obviously done the NAFTA deal and had in principle understandings with the likes of the EU, but he wants to galvanize a deal. He will want markets to react positively and he will want solid US growth coming into the 2020 election. So I think all roads lead to a solution. And I think the probability of China and the US allowing themselves to fall into a situation where both are levying 25% tariffs on all their respective exports is extremely low probability. I'd put it at sort of sub 10% post mid-July. Chris, I want to move on to talk about the secrets hidden in hedging costs and duration for bond investors. In particular, we've had huge changes in hedging costs for Aussie dollar investors allocating to US fixed income and also dramatic shifts in the returns attributable to interest rate duration. Now, if you take US fixed income and hedge it into Aussie dollars, for the last five years, that improved your returns by about 1% annually, simply because the Aussie cash rate was above the US Fed funds rate, even after controlling for the cross-currency basis. Now, with the RBA cash rate sinking below the Fed funds rate, that relationship has changed quite dramatically. So if as an Aussie investor, you buy US fixed income and hedge it back into Aussie dollars, you've gone from capturing an annual 1% yield benefit to now suffering an annual 0.74% return decrease. And now the opposite is true, obviously, for US dollar investors that are investing in Australian assets. You know, I would therefore be very careful about looking at US fixed income products hedged into Aussie dollars. If you looked at their five-year returns, they'll appear fantastic because of that annual return uplift. But today, hedging costs will crush your returns. Chris, what do you think? Yeah, Ying is. I'm glad you raised this topic because it's an incredibly important one uh, that I don't think is widely understood. People just look at the outright yield differentials between Australia and the US and think that money must be flowing into the US from Australia because of those uh, yield differentials. But the hedging costs are a game changer and uh, losing 1% per annum uh, from hedging US fixed income into Aussie dollars is a big deal. Equally, we've certainly seen demand um, for Aussie bonds hedged into US dollars to pick up that 0.7% annual return improvement that you've referred to. Um, another, I think, practical illustration of that is Challenger. If you look at Challenger's annuity products, they were selling Aussie dollar annuities into Japan and demand for those annuities has dropped significantly, but demand for Challenger annuities in US dollars is um, is very strong. And I think a related dynamic is uh, the returns and benefits um, associated with fixing interest rates. So taking on uh, so-called interest rate duration risk, which you also mentioned. Uh, and I think it's useful to look at a few different case studies 
because the last 12 months look spectacular in our own composite bond strategy, the Coolabar composite, uh, active composite bond strategy. As I mentioned earlier, we've returned 10.24%, but that's clearly largely been driven by duration uh, and the big reduction in uh, long-term fixed rates. Um, to be clear, the composite bond index has returned 7.9% over that period. So we've added <clears throat> substantial value above and beyond that index. But if we ignore credit, and we just look at the risk-free rate or a portfolio of AAA-rated Aussie government bonds. Over the year to May 2018, that portfolio only returned 1.3%. If you go back further in time and you look at the 12 months to September 2017, AAA-rated Aussie government bonds actually returned negative 2.3%. And on both occasions, the performance was very poor because the bond portfolio returns were being crushed by rising interest rates because people felt that growth would be strong. The Fed would be increasing rates, which obviously did four times last year, and inflation would rise, which it also did last year. Uh, And that will hurt anyone investing in a fixed rate as opposed to a floating rate bond portfolio. Now, in the last 12 months to April, the opposite dynamic has gripped. Uh, and so we've seen a AAA-rated Aussie government bond portfolio return 8.9% over that period, despite the fact that that portfolio is only currently yielding 1.6%. So simply as a function of um, the duration, the 6.5-year duration in the Aussie government bond index, you've had um, a a big improvement in returns. Specifically, um, in May last year, the 10-year Aussie government bond yield was almost at 3%, and now it's sitting around 1.7% because markets are convinced the world is going to be inflation-free forever. But the truth is, we know that nobody can really forecast accurately changes in inflation or interest rates over periods longer than 12 months. So, you know, locking in 1.7% yields for on average periods of five to six years or you know, long duration periods is in my view, falls gold and exposes you to tremendous downside risk. You sometimes hear people say that duration is a great equity hedge, but we know if you look at the last 30 or 40 years of data, you know, duration and equities were actually positively correlated. So returns between Aussie government bonds and Aussie equities were positively correlated over the 1980s and 1990s. Um, and it was only during the GFC that that correlation really turned sharply negative. And look, uh, Ying is what's happened uh, to the correlation, uh, surprise, surprise, between government bonds and equities in 2019. Both have rallied aggressively. The correlation has been immensely positive. Yes, it was negative last year. I would argue it was negative for the wrong reasons. You know, the world thought we were heading into recession. Markets had complete conniptions. Yet again, the US jobless rate is at 3.6%. Um, and US GDP growth has absolutely shocked um, market forecasters. I think um, another lesson on this subject of the tricks and traps in duration and FX hedging is some of the LICs that you see in the market. So um, Newberger Berman has a high yield LIC with a lot of US you know, high yield or sub-investment grade product. And if you look at their returns since it launched in September last year, the overall total return has been 5.3%, but almost exactly half of that has actually had nothing to do with those credits, uh, that has been a duration return or the reduction in long-term interest rates, which has increased the price of fixed rate bonds. So two point, uh, roughly 2.6% of the 5.3% has been 
um, driven by changes in long-term interest rates, and the other half of the return again, uh, around 2.6-2.7% has been credit. I think it's important for investors to understand whether their fixed income portfolios are generating returns through pure luck from big market and macro changes in long-term interest rate expectations that nobody can consistently forecast. I don't know anyone who's generated alpha from second-guessing interest rates over the last 20 years consistently. And the completely different skill set associated with asset selection and picking the underlying bonds and the credits that are mispriced and that are paying too much credit risk premium for their risk and which are likely to experience credit spread normalization that will increase the value of those bonds over time uh, independently of any interest rate changes. Chris, on the subject of asset selection and finding cheap bonds, NAB Price, the first tier two bond issued by a major bank since we saw Westpac print a tier two transaction in June last year. Before NAB launched this $1 billion deal, our Cooler Bar model suggested fair value for a triple B rated tier two bond with NAB's features was about 1.92% above the three month bank bill swap rate, otherwise known as BBSW, or about 3.57% per annum in total. For a range of complex reasons, NAB priced the bond at a 2.15% margin above BBSW, or a total return of 3.8%, which was about 23 basis points above fair value in credit spread terms. Yet, within a few hours, the bond's interest rate had normalised or mean reverted to 3.64%, which provided us with an instant capital gain of about 0.7% as the bond's price jumped from $100 to $100.70. So very attractive double-digit internal rate of return on that one trade in what is an investment-grade bond. Chris, what insight can you offer us on that presidential transaction? Yeah, Yingers, there were a number of important lessons, I think, from this transaction. Arguably, the most significant is the heinously expensive price that NAB uh, was forced to pay at a record at 2.6 times the cost of its five-year senior bond spreads. Uh, This new deal was the most expensive that we have seen a major bank ever issue relative to the cost of its senior debt since the new so-called Basel III Tier 2 product uh, was introduced in 2013. The only comparable transaction uh, that we can identify was when Westpac issued uh, a tier two bond in February 2016 at 310 basis points over um, BBSW. And that was in the middle of that Deutsche Bank crisis when global investors feared the German bank would default on its debts. Um, And this was unambiguously one of the worst periods for bank credit spreads since the GFC. I think Major Bank Senior at that time was trading about 120 to 130 over BBSW. So um, arguably this NAB deal last week was uh, even more expensive on a relative cost basis. If you look at the performance of the last tier two bond, uh, which was the Westpac uh, June 2018 deal. Uh, it performed pretty well up until November last year when APRA released its consultation paper on the bail-in ability of Aussie bank bonds and building up a bigger bail-in buffer, the so-called total loss absorbing capacity or TLAC solution. And if you look, just look at a price chart of that Westpac security, um, the price jumps a uh, drop, sorry, off a cliff in the week or two following that report. Very, very uh, sudden decline. And then uh, following that period, the price slowly recovers back to its pre-APRA 
levels. It doesn't doesn't quite get there, but it got pretty close uh, as of you know, last week, just before NAB launched this new Tier 2 transaction. More specifically, the Westpac Tier 2 bond was trading on a credit spread of about 167 basis points over BBSW before the APRA report. When that report was released, it blew out to about 210 basis points over. When we quantitatively strip out the um, market beta or the so-called market-wide movements, uh, the APRA report drove that spread about 33 basis points wider. Just before the NAB deal was announced last week, that Westpac Tier 2 transaction was tra trading at around 175 over from the wides of 210 over in uh, November last year. Uh, and I think the only reason the spread had compressed to such a tight level wasn't quite at the 167, circa 167 level that we saw pre-APRA's report. But the only reason this has happened is that uh, global bank credit investors have arrived, arrived at the conclusion that APRA uh, would, be go, would be quite crazy to go down the tier two path to satisfy its um, bail-in-level bond targets. Um, you can, I think, surely find fund managers who are mischievous and will tell you, yeah, absolutely do tier two to fill the TLAC bucket and we'll find you the money. But I think these guys are uh, those who you know, are quite comfortable with the idea of forcing Aussie bank credit spreads as wide as possible to get the highest possible yields. And I don't think they really care about APRA's reputation, financial system stability, threats to bank solvency, the security of our banks you know, compared to peers overseas, uh, and all the potential costs that that would impose on taxpayers. And having worked in the policy domain for um, a solid 20 years, I do think I have a track record of demonstrating that I do actually care deeply about these matters. So what was, I think, shocking about the 2.6 times senior spread multiple NAB was forced to pay for its $1 billion at tier two, and there was clearly a lot of pent up demand because we hadn't seen a major bank transaction for a year, um, is particularly that that, that uh, multiple was actually in the 2.5 times to three times senior spread range um, that our surveys of market makers and global investors had suggested would apply if APRA forced the banks to exclusively use tier two to meet the TLAC target. Uh, and that would involve including rollovers about $125 billion of tier two issuance over the next four years. And it also came in a market where most investors are attributing only a very low probability, like a very low probability to APRA sticking to the original idea uh, and not using uh, a much simpler, safer, and more liquid solution in the form of tier three, which is you know, global best practice. So if as a large investor, you would ask me what spread uh, would we need if APRA does indeed adopt a tier two solution and not a tier three solution and targets an extra TLAC buffer of four to five percent of the bank's risk-weighted assets. I can say pretty confidently today, Yingers, um, that we would need at least 300 basis points over BBSW compared to the 215 basis points over BBSW that NAB paid. So I think the cost of tier two is much, much greater than we uh, originally anticipated and other investors anticipated. Um, and this is partly because we all know that with a globally unprecedented mountain of tier two funding to find, if APRA were to stick to the tier two plan and, and require the banks to issue $125 billion of tier two, we would see absolutely crazy prices, well north of 300 basis points if markets sour, as they did in 2008, 9, 2011, 2012, 2015, 2016, and 2018. I mean, we saw Westpac pay 310 over uh, in February 16 uh, when there was you know, very little global major bank tier two issue issuance. So yeah, it wouldn't surprise me to see spreads of 400 to 500 basis points over um, if they had to source 80 to 100 billion of new tier two on top of the tier two that already exists. 
And we know that in really, really tough conditions, it's almost impossible to refinance tier two, particularly because it's subordinated and there's only so much global capacity for subordinated bonds as opposed to senior bonds such as tier three or non-preferred senior. Um, what else? I think the NAB tier two deal and these valuation ranges, they also give us a powerful insight into how much cheaper specifically tier two or non-preferred senior would be. We know that BNP issued 500 million of five-year tier three or non-preferred senior a few months ago here in Australia. Now that deal priced at 175 basis points over bank bills. And it's actually, uh, or as of last week, it was trading at about <coughs> 160 basis points over. To be clear, that's 55 basis points per annum, less in cost than what NAB was just forced to pay for its tier two transaction and on our numbers it would be about 140 basis points annually lowering costs than what the majors will have to pay if they have to pony up and find uh, another 80 to 100 billion of tier two on top of their existing stack now if you contrast this against a well-constructed major bank tier three product um, a product that gives APRA all the gone concerned capital it would ever need but which also strives to minimize the cost of TLAC on banks depositors and borrowers uh, you know you arrive at very different conclusions um, specifically I think an Aussie non-preferred senior or tier three bond that ranks above tier two but below traditional senior which is only convertible into equity if APRA takes control of a bank or puts it into administration that is to say it's true gone concern capital not going concern capital uh, that cannot be written off and which has a creditor no worse off protection um, like they do in Canada and the US with their tier like product would on our research of where Canadian uh, tier three or non-preferred senior currently prices traded about 1.25 to 1.5 times current major bank senior spreads as opposed to you know, well north of three times in the alternative. And I think that 1.25 times to 1.5 times is pretty conservative. I think it could actually trade significantly tighter than that, um, an Aussie tier three product that is. Uh, so well-designed Aussie non-preferred senior or tier three, I think would cost about 104 to 124 basis points over BBSW. That's about 91 basis points per annum cheaper than NAB's uh, current tier two, the new deal, i.e. massively cheaper. And it would be about 176 basis points per annum cheaper than where we think major bank tier two would trade if APRA for some reason has a, an aneurysm uh, and clings on to the tier two idea. As we've noted before, you'd also be limiting the major banks to a pool of TLAC funding globally that is um, between 10% and 25% the size of the global tier three or non-preferred senior pool if you stuck with tier two. And by doing so, you'd massively increase financial stability risks uh, when they come to try and roll over this funding vis-a-vis vis peers globally. For the avoidance of doubt and, and full disclosure, like we have four to five times the exposure uh, to the major bank senior bonds, which benefit from tier two or tier three in our portfolios than we do to their tier two. So whether APRA goes down the obvious tier three path or plays Russian roulette with tier two doesn't affect us commercially. One final point, Ying Yi, uh, and I noticed you just kind of writing me a note on this uh, post-it note about this specific subject. I am actually uh, utterly convinced that contractual tier three uh, or non-preferred senior with statutory hooks to the Banking Act um, and specifically the features I just mentioned. So equity conversion only in the event APRA takes control of a bank and accredited no worse off protection uh, with no write-off would be viewed in the markets very favorably. Um, and I think it'll be considered a hybrid statutory contractual solution, which I think could be extremely easily implemented by APRA with a new prudential standard and would not require any legislative change at all. Um, given APRA updated the Banking Act last year and it inserted a, a so-called other securities provision 
that um, covers APRA's bail-in rights, which tier three or non-preferred senior would be caught by. Uh, and I guess in summary, on every single test, save for the one that asks whether APRA has to do any extra dra- drafting, uh, tier three uh, of a contractual nature or non-preferred senior rec- contractual nature is a demonstrably simpler and more effective solution than tier two. Uh, I guess we've made these points before, so I apologies. Uh, sorry, I apologise for the the wonkish segue uh, into this subject. But you know, the NAB T two trade was a significant one, given we hadn't seen any domestic transactions uh, for almost a year. So, Chris, you wrote in the AFR recently that the RBA's governor, Phil Lowe, passed our controversial intelligence test with flying colours by surprising many of the best forecasters in the business with his entirely sensible decision to exercise the option to wait on rates. And contrary to claims at the time, this has no ramifications at all for the RBA's inflation targeting regime. Whether they go in June, July or August does not make a jot of difference to the ensuing economic outcomes. Well, Chris, you personally felt that Lowe would be mad to go in May immediately prior to the meeting. You were torn on what he would do in practice. Judged on both the RBA's past behaviours where they've not hesitated to pull the trigger close to an election, and their inflation targeting reaction function the RBA has historically adhered to, one would have expected them to go uh, in May. So, Chris, what did you learn? What we learned about Lowe, uh, Ying Yi, is that he may be very different to his predecessors in terms of his pragmatism, judgment and humility. Uh, this might indeed be a more sensible RBA decision-making regime to the one that blew the biggest housing bubble in history between 2012 and 2017 in blind pursuit of artificially precise inflationary outcomes. An alternative possibility, though, is that the RBA executive ran with their inflation targeting instincts and recommended a cut, but were persuaded by the board's independent directors to minimise the tail risks of becoming one of the central narratives in the election campaign. Rightly or wrongly, this could have tarnished the RBA with a partisan brush. Barring a demonstrable move lower in the jobless rate, our central case has to be that the RBA eases its cash rate over the next six months to a new record low of 1%, which has profound consequences, we believe, for portfolios. As uh, we've argued before, this is incredibly positive for housing. Lenders should pass on 40 to 50 bips of, or basis points of uh, the home loan rate reductions, given the striking recent compression in bank funding costs, which has also been um, something that has been powering our portfolios. Save, of course, for the the uh, T2 bond that NAB uh, issued last week that was heinously expensive, but again, drove out for in our portfolios when the spread normalized from 215 to 200. Coupled with a potential 50 basis point cut in the bank's minimum interest rate serviceability test, <coughs> which we revealed uh, a couple of weeks ago is on the table and noting that uh, APRA currently requires banks or lenders to set the minimum interest rate at 7% when testing borrower servicing capacity, um, this would also contribute to promptly ending the housing correction. So just quickly in summary, the likelihood of two RBA rate cuts and also uh, interest rate relief in terms of borrowing capacity from the current regulatory requirements. Now, if the Liberal Party pulls off a miracle, which according to betting markets is very unlikely, and triumphs in the election, house prices will definitely move higher as investors price out the prospect of negative gearing being eliminated and capital gains tax jumping by 50%. If um, the smart (coughs) money is right and labor prevails, then house prices should at the very least hopefully stop falling. 
Do I think the RBA should cut? No, I don't. I think they should let the housing market clear and allow fiscal policy uh, to inject any stimulus the economy needs. Now, on this note, the chair of the National Press Club incorrectly claimed that the federal budget was still in deficit when questioning Prime Minister Scott Morrison during what was otherwise a a tremendous debate, uh, a tremendous final debate with Bill Shorten, uh, hosted by the ABC, <coughs> which is, I think, must-see TV. If you saw the first two debates, I'd watch the third, because I certainly learnt a lot. And the fact is that Josh Frydenberg's budget is now uh, in surplus on every single key measure, including the underlying cash basis uh, over the 12 months to March. I believe the RBA remains an inflation targeter and is understandably motivated to defend its credibility. So whilst we've alleged that the standard errors around its core inflation forecasts are huge, it thinks that the current 1.4% core inflation rate is unacceptably short of the midpoint of its 2 to 3% target range. Another reason I think Lowe will cut if the jobless rate does not materially drop, which it actually could do, to be clear, is that he's probably not that exercised about exhausting his policy ammunition given the optionality of initiating an Australian version of quantitative easing, or QE, terrible name, but it basically means buying assets to reduce their cost of capital, bid up their price, uh, and reduce their discount rates. Because most Australian borrowers pay variable as opposed to fixed rates of interest, the cost of um, most Aussie loans prices off short-term variable rather than long-term fixed interest rate benchmarks. In the US during the crisis, the Fed bought long-dated government bonds to reduce the risk-free rate that America's 30-year fixed rate home loans price off. But doing so in Australia would definitely lower um, bank funding costs by slashing their benchmark rates uh, and translate into cheaper money for fixed rate borrowers. But it wouldn't necessarily have an impact for all the uh, variable rate borrowers out there in the community. And there's about 80% of borrowers today who are on variable rate loans rather than fixed rate loans, uh, which broadly price off the overnight cash rate. This means that once the cash rate gets near zero and pass through from banks becomes, I think, increasingly problematic when you get below 1% because they start hurting their net interest margins on their zero interest bank transaction accounts. I believe the RBA will want to extend the idea that I successfully pitched to the Rudd government with Professor Joshua Gans in 2008 when we published a proposal that argued the government should buy residential mortgage-backed securities or RMBS. And we actually formally advised both the Prime Minister's office and the Treasurer's office on the design of that policy. And the government ended up committing $15 billion to it. The RBA already accepts AAA-rated RMBS as collateral when lending to counterparties through its repurchase or repo arrangements, which was a change it introduced during the crisis at the end of 2007 that um, undoubtedly substantially improved the liquidity of and thus the demand for uh, RMBS and taking one step further by engaging in an outright RMBS buying program as other central banks have done during and since the GFC I think would be particularly potent for Aussie home loan rates by reducing the cost of capital directly for both banks <coughs> and non-banks that source money via selling RMBS bonds backed by home loans and that is definitely an increasingly popular funding medium. Australia has the second biggest residential securitization market in the world after the US. Right now, there are, I think, seven different deals that have 
either being launched or are being priced. Uh, if the RBA wanted to concurrently ease the cost of small business borrowing, they could extend this idea by buying portfolios of SME loans along Scott Morrison's new Australian Business Securitization Fund. The Prime Minister about a year ago approached me and said, how do I reduce the cost of SME borrowing? And I put this idea to him. So I proposed that the government uh, invest billions of dollars into uh, ABS or asset-backed securities full of SME loans to help attract global institutional capital to the sector. As we've seen global capital uh, flowing in vast volumes into uh, securitized Aussie home loans. And this would enhance the liquidity and therefore reduce the cost of funding for small business loans in Australia, uh, just as we've seen the RMBS market do for housing. And what does this mean for the RMBS market, which you've been very negative on since February 2018? Yeah, good question, Yingers. Um, I think a 1% RBA cash rate will translate into substantially high demand for any relatively low-risk assets paying decent spreads above it. Uh, and that would include um, bank and insurer bonds, hybrids, noting that Labor's uh, franking policy appears dead given the Senate is hell-bent on um, thwarting it. And of course, uh, highly rated uh, ABS and RMBS. So I guess while we sold our RMBS holdings in February 2018 and it's been the worst performing fixed income asset class in 2019, I am preparing to revisit this opportunity over the next year or two. Before doing so, I'd want to see the federal court um, decision in ASIC's case against Westpac on on irresponsible lending or responsible lending, uh, which we think should favour Westpac. Um, And I'd also like to see house prices stabilise and then start climbing higher. I'd certainly avoid, like the plague, any home loans written between 2016 and 2019 that have suffered from falling house prices, deteriorating collateral, uh, much, much higher uh, mortgage default rates and uh, potential breaches of responsible lending laws. And given the choice, I would also always prefer bank-issued RMBS over non-bank bonds since the latter are not ordinarily regulated by APRA, which is definitely the global gold standard when it comes to minimising credit risks. And Chris, Westpac recently published research on prepayment rates or CPRs for prime Aussie RMBS that had some pretty interesting insights that confirmed our analysis, right? Yeah, Yingyi, that's a good point. Um, Westpac did publish that research and it was interesting and it did, as you noted, confirm our own hedonic analysis or compositionally adjusted analysis of uh, the prepayment rates on Aussie uh, mortgage-backed securities. What Westpac found was that uh, prime or high-quality RMBS bonds um, had seen their prepayment rates, all the CPRs, as you uh, refer to them, uh, drop substantially below uh, long-term averages, and they're sitting around 20% on average today. They also looked at particular vintages, and they looked at the 2017 RMBS issues, uh, and noting that that was the biggest issue year since the GFC, um, and prime 2017 RMBS bonds have suffered from very uh, strongly declining prepayment rates. Uh, since late 2018 from around 22% of borrowers uh, to 16%, which is quite stark. And I certainly haven't seen that for a very, very long time. The main driver of this is actually bank RMBS issues um, where the prepayment rates are around 15% versus uh, a rate of 22% approximately six months ago. So the question is, what is driving this dynamic? And 
I guess Westpac argue that, um, you know, firstly, obviously, the 2017 deals have been running on prepayment rates that are substantially lower than their marketing assumption, which can be very negative for investors. And whilst um, the proportion of interest-only loan borrowers prepaying their loans has been rising over time, these IO loans have been disappearing from portfolios as they're prepaid. And so we're seeing that principal interest loans are making up a larger and larger proportion of the bond. And it's these P&I prepayment rates that have been slowing quite dramatically. Uh, Westpac also surmise um, that interest-only loans are not actually leaving the pools, but they're switching to P&I, which is actually credit positive insofar as you know, these interest-only uh, interest borrowers are now finally repaying principal. On the other hand, you could argue it's potentially credit negative insofar as switching from interest-only to P&I, whether that's volunta voluntary or contractual, uh, could put additional stress on borrowers who now have to pay uh, principal as well as their interest. We do know that the big, dramatic, you know, circa 100 basis point increase in interest-only lending rates when APRA introduced the cap on interest-only lending, the 30% cap, uh, and applied that to ADIs uh, did trigger a lot of switching. We've made the point that falling prepayment rates, all things being equal, is bad for RMBS investors by blowing out weighted average lives. And that's certainly true if the current secondary spread on the bond is above its issue margin because the, the weighted average life of the bond increases and the price declines further. If on the other hand, the deal is trading at a premium to par uh, and the credit spread is actually below its issue margin, I guess Westpac made the point that uh, it might not be a bad thing because the wall's increasing and the premium increases. So I think that kind of wraps it up for this episode of the podcast. Thanks again to all of our listeners um, who have been tremendous. We've got like six to 700 downloads of recent episodes per episode. Uh, when we launched the podcast, I thought there would be max 500 people globally that would be interested in this uh, nerdy content. And it seems like uh, there might be a few more. Please listen to the disclaimer and also email me at uh, christopher.joy at callbycapital.com um, if you have any questions or want us to talk about any specific topics. Thanks again. This podcast does not provide financial advice. It is not an invitation to invest in any financial product and the information in it should not be relied on for any decisions. All views expressed represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or a recommendation and should not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit the moneysmart.gov.au website to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.